You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuts. You know, as I look back on 25 years of pastoring, one of my regrets is that I, I didn't do more to really help equip uh, people in the business workplace. I remember one of my elders of my church coming up to me and he was trying to explain to me that his Sunday experience with faith was so different than his Monday through Friday experience. And I asked him to tell me about that. His name's Tim, just a great guy, man of integrity and character, skilled businessman. And he said, look, I wake up Monday morning and I put my armor on because the values uh, that I have to face in the workplace are so profoundly different than my own values. Now, of course, that's not the case across the board. There's a lot of people whose faith values integrate very well into their business world. But in his case, it felt like a fight. And so I, I've always been interested in finding business people of faith who have integrated their their faith in the workplace. And earlier this year, I got the privilege of listening to and learning from and then meeting uh, Preston Poor. Preston's my guest today on the show. He's currently an executive with Coca-Cola. You've probably heard of it. Um, apparently, he likes to specialize in sugar because before working for Coke, he worked for Hershey Chocolate for a while. Uh, he's done some other things as well. But what got me interested, uh, I was listening to Preston, and actually, it was a really fun conference for me because it was in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. And um, just having all these Amish people come to this conference that Preston and I were speaking at together was just a blast. The man that ran the conference, Steve Goebel, I want to give a shout out to Steve. What a guy. Um, really neat to see a, a leadership person in action, see how Steve integrated his whole family into the conference. But I was listening to Preston speak. He was one of the keynotes. And what struck me about him is, is he has a clear vision of leadership. He has a clear vision of what it means to be a Christian in the workplace. But then his ability to really break it down into steps for people, I, I thought was amazing. So just a few weeks ago, he came out with a book called The Discipled Leader. Got it here on my desk. I really enjoyed reading it. Preston's a great storyteller, both out of his own life and also just some historical stories he shares. But The Discipled Leader, his book, his first book, it's really about, okay, you're a follower of Christ. You have influence in the workplace. How do you integrate in both? So Preston, welcome to first of all, the world's longest ever introduction. Thanks for coming on the show. <laughs> Steve, thank you. Great to be here today. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's get started by just telling us, all right, uh, what made you want to write this book? Uh, well, it actually started 10 plus years ago. Um, I took a class uh, course called Christian Leadership Concepts. And I tell people that it was really an MBA or a master's in Christian living and leadership. And uh, I took that maybe 2007 through 2009. And uh, I came out of that realizing that there was an opportunity to address, I guess, really an audience that doesn't have two years to invest in discipleship. And uh, maybe around 10, 12 weeks or something like that, they could read a book and learn some things, participate maybe in a mastermind course or some kind of training. So I had these ideas in the back of my head what that would look like. And as I started going along and thinking through discipleship, there's so much discipleship stuff out there. And I had publishers look at me and say, well, why another one? What's, what's the difference, right? And then I started thinking about, okay, you know, I've learned so much in my career. If you take these things and apply them in the workplace, what do they actually look like? How do you do that? And so I've journaled for years. And uh, the only reason I'm really to tell a story with any um, level of 
uh, fact and, and uh, re- recollection, if you will, is because of the journals I went back to where I was writing my heart out on pages, uh, recording things that were going on inside of my, you know, uh, inside my head and my heart. And I started writing. And so that's really how that started. It really was meant to be a ministry as discipleship. But then it turned into how do you act as a disciple? How do you show up at work uh, and do that? Yeah, and I think that's what's fascinating. You know, obviously you're an executive with Coca-Cola, but you weren't always high up in an organization. It'd be interesting to hear some of your challenges in the early days when you go to work, but you maybe don't necessarily have the authority to create culture. You know, you are stepping into someone else's culture. What was that like for you in the early days? I, you know, I really believe that if you uh, if you start with your sphere of influence, and uh, it's that ripple effect piece that people are probably familiar with, that if you, you know, you're a drop in the water, then it's like Mother Teresa said, I can cast a stone in the water and create waves. Uh, you can do that yourself. Um, as you step into a culture, I think the first thing, Steve, people need to think about are their values, uh, their personal values. What are your values? And then understanding what the company's values are. And then where's that common ground uh, between the two? And so it started with me really identifying, again, what my values, my personal values are, my, like my top three are uh, faith, family, and then um, uh, work and excellence around that, leadership, and then teamwork. Those are the top five. But I, I took those and I said, okay, does my company have that? And then how do I work within that? Uh, but the biggest challenge for me was this, is that I think you, in your opening, you talked about the gentleman that, that you talked about vocational discipleship. I had wonderful pastors, mentors, disciples in the church growing up, but I never had anybody show me how to show up at work on Monday. And so literally I, uh, I was, you know, it's that, that divide that's, that's out there between the secular and the sacred or the spiritual. And I lived that life. I was uh, one way on Sunday and one way with my family, but a totally different person in the environment I was in on Monday. So even might even say I acted like an atheist uh, because I just had felt like I was in that culture. But uh, truly, uh, the Lord, there was a tipping point, and we can talk about that later if you'd like to, but there was a tipping point in my life where I, had, I realized that, you know what, is I'm trying to be promoted through the ranks. Uh, what I'm doing is not working. I was more worried on my performance, thinking that uh, I would be promoted based on my performance. There was a breaking point in me where I had a, a few people quit on me. My manager looked at me and said, you got to go get this thing fixed. Uh, and if you don't, you probably won't be with our organization much longer, and your career is not going to go where you hope it goes. So... Uh, yeah, early on, early on, it was just a, a, a lack of understanding about what it looks like to be a Christian in the workplace. Yeah, you you write really poignantly. I mean, right out of the gate, you talk about your ambition uh, as a young leader and uh, the, the employees that once you became their manager, they wanted to quit because of your, I, I believe you said it was your condescension, right? That was the common theme that the boss then had you go get some coaching on. Uh, it'd be obviously ambition is also a human development thing. You were a lot younger then, you know, you're older now. Mm-hmm. Talk, talk to those ambitious young leaders that are wanting to make a name for themselves or, or, or the conflict that that has with the kingdom of God. Cause you wrote really poignantly about that. I thought, yeah, you know, a- ambition is not a bad thing. It's just a question of what your ambition is for. Uh, if your ambition is for yourself and wanting to accumulate, acquire, be promoted, be recognized, be uh, admired, um, that motive is off a little bit. Certainly, uh, if you're a believer, not a little bit, it's off a bunch. But if your motive is actually to uh, love people, help develop them, help them reach their goals uh, and working 
with people and through people to accomplish or, uh, extraordinary things, you're, you're going to do well. Um, it's one of those things, if, uh, uh, if you help others, it ends up helping yourself. And I was more worried about helping myself and uh, working and pushing people, if you will, uh, in that environment. So my ambition changed, uh, Steve, uh, from one of those trying to be promoted and look good. And as God worked in my heart, it ended up being where my motive became, what can I help the other person with? Uh, you know, there's the phrase, people don't know how much you care until they know how much you care about them. And they want to know if you can be trusted. Uh, and if you can actually help them. And I learned those things, uh, not only through experience, but uh, one of, I guess you could call him a mentor of John Maxwell, uh, is I'm a, a, a coach, teacher, and trainer. But I was reading John Maxwell content way before I got certified for all that. I was reading Dale Carnegie type stuff, uh, very just intrigued in the, the human psychology and how that relates in the business place. Uh, but go back to your question about ambition. Um, ambition's not bad in and of itself. It's what you're ambitious for. And uh, people aren't going to remember what you do necessarily in your life if you're on your deathbed, but they probably will remember how you treated them, how you helped them, whether they trusted you or not, and the impact that you made in their life. And I try to make that my ambition now. Yeah, you you actually quote Leo Tolstoy in the book, the, mm -hmm. the, the simple idea that everyone wants to change other people, but we really have to first work on changing ourselves. It's actually the cornerstone of a family system series, the theory this whole podcast is about. I'm always interested in what leaders are working on now. What is an area of your life, as you look at your workplace environment, what's an area of your life that you're working on yourself? Uh, maybe another way to ask a question is, where do you keep running into yourself that you're like, ah, oh, this is something I really want to be working on? Yeah, well, um, there's so many, Steve. Uh, it's not like that I, I wrote this book and I'm full of wisdom and now I've moved on, right? And I'm perfect. That's not the case. Um, I'm living this stuff out every day. Uh, I'm on a new team now. I made a decision not to go for and, and uh, for a role uh, in our organization and uh, decided to stay on the team. And a peer of mine actually got the role. And I've made a conscious decision to go with that and make the have the mindset that I want him to be successful in the role. So I'm, it's a it's a daily thing for me to try to be a servant, um, not be resentful, be thankful for the position I'm in. And that's a daily thing for me. Gosh. Um, and we just actually got off of a team event over the past couple of days. A few things we did here in Atlanta and got to engage with the team and my uh, new manager and who is becoming a leader, which is fun to watch. And he's open to my coaching. Uh, as, as maybe the mentor uh, a little bit, playing a little bit of a mentorship role in that. But those are things that I work on daily, uh, uh, resentment, frustration, um, trying to be content in my circumstances and uh, applying these things because they're, they're, they're not just principles that are written in stone and they're done with. They're actually things that I have to live out. And uh, it's kind of funny. People know that I wrote the book and if they read it and then they see me acting a different way at work, I'm like, eh, that's not it's tough. Actually, I think right. that's a wonderful uh, point you raised. I, I, what I love about what you're saying is I think we all have values and we all fall short of our own values. Oh, yeah. You know, Paul writes that we fall short of the glory of God, but we also fall short of our own standards for ourselves. And that's, that to me is where things get really interesting. So for the fact that your team can come and actually show you how you're violating your own standards and then you're willing to receive that, that, that says a lot. Yeah, you know, and Paul also talks about that. Uh, I believe he was the one that talked about us being teachers that we're going to be held to a higher standard. So it's in the back of my mind that, uh, you know, press, you, you've gone through these things before. And if you continue to let these behaviors repeat themselves in front of others, um, you're not living out what the Lord has actually uh, adjusted and changed in you. And I, I just think it's one of those things I continue to battle. 
I've gotten better at it. I really have. I'm more aware, if you will, of uh, my behaviors, my anxiety, if you will, that comes in those certain situations, uh, the resentment, the attitude. And it really is a mindset. It, it truly is for me, Steve, and uh, the way I approach every day. And I actually have to have that self-talk as that self-critic comes in or the inner critic comes in. I have to know, wait, wait a second. Uh, and I pray about it. And, I, and then I you know, get there and I say, hey, uh, I can't do this. And here's what I want to do. And here's how I want to approach the day. And uh, it's not because I'm trying to impress people. It's not because I'm trying to live up to something. It's I'm trying to live out something that the Lord is doing in me and through me. Mm, yeah. You, you cast a pretty profound vision in the book. You know, you say that we give 40 to 80 hours of our week to this one endeavor. Uh, you know, I, I think what you're casting for us is two things. Why not? Why not let it be a place of discipleship? And also, why not enjoy it? What would be circumstances in your work environment that make it the most difficult for you to see God at work? What would be a situation where you're like, oh man, how do I follow God in this, in this situation? Yeah, well, there's, uh, again, there's been, been many on that. Let me kind of build on your thought there and then let me come see if I can come back to that. Statistics show that you will invest 90 hours, 90, 90 I'm sorry, 90,000 hours. Let's get that right. Get the fact right. Not only 90 hours, but 90,000 hours over your lifetime. Uh, at work. And uh, work is one of those places where we discover ourselves. We learn to relate to other people um, and and, under, and develop character, for goodness sake, and, and uh, really live those things out. And so I use the word invest. The question is, are you investing your time at work to grow or are you spending time at work and just kind of making it through? And I think uh, work is really one of those places that God uses to help sanctify us. There's one of those theological terms uh, but to make us more like his son over time. I encounter challenges, uh, gosh, on a, on a uh, I guess, a regular basis. I'm finding, Steve, in my career, I'm getting toward the end of my career with my current company right now. I'm hoping to retire, I'm, mm. say, public here, publicly here, maybe next year, mm. uh, and do some other things and move on to another chapter. Um, and if that's, the Lord blesses me that way, I'm looking forward to it. But I find my problems aren't necessarily business problems. They're people problems. Uh, and how do you connect and relate to other people and how do you help them and collaborate with them? How do you act like you're, you're not the know-it-all, but you are empathetic and you're listening to other people um, and being present in the moment to help to do that? And those seem to be the specific, uh, the more of the focus that I've seen, less so on actually business problems. If you put people together that collaborate and trust and are vulnerable uh, are focused on results, they hold each other accountable, you can pretty much accomplish anything you want to and need to. Uh, but if those relationships aren't built on trust, uh, that's tough. Now, here's where I go back. I'm on this new team that I'm on right now, and, and the leadership has done a fantastic job in saying, okay, we're forming, storming, norming, and then performing. That Those are the four typical steps of the team piece. And how do you actually sit in an environment where you're coached with a group, you have a vulnerability that's built trust, sharing uh, life experiences instead of just talking transactional type things during work. Um, and that's been really good for us. I think that we had a breakthrough this week uh, in terms of everybody kind of getting to know and appreciate each other for their strengths and who they are. But what's what I've seen that so many times, Steve, and the teams that I've been on uh, is that you've got to have that trust foundation early on. And if you have that, then the problems, the work problems are e easier to solve. It's less about the people. It's more about the actual work problems because the people are working together. Yeah, you actually write quite poignantly about honesty, integrity, and trust and how it really is the, the linchpin or the cornerstone. Mm -hmm. uh, give us a time where you have had to confront somebody 
over their character in the workplace. Uh, what, what was that like? I tell a story in the book. Uh, it was a really tough circumstance uh, where there was a lack of integrity in the workplace. And uh, what happened in that was that there were some folks in the local market that were leveraging their work time for personal gain. And this uh, real high up gentleman that I used to work with, uh, we were standing in the park at the parking lot one day and we'd just been on a market ride and, and saw a lack of execution, which had been consistent over maybe a year before that. And he looked at me and said, uh, hey, press, why do you think this is happening? And I was made aware of all these other things going on where people had uh, 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 distractions, if you will. And lacked focus. And if they got asked about results, they had a way to, to cover things up. And I, I, I said, OK, let me show you something. And I walked him over to a car there in the parking lot, a company car. And it had a decal on the car. And it was a logo, logo, a picture of their side business. And I said, this is an example of how people are using company time to benefit for personal gain. And if you dig into it, there's a lot more behind it. That individual, uh, that leader said, I'll go check it out. Uh, and eventually over time he did. And uh, it was it was a sad thing because I think that that leader kind of had known this. He was complicit, but never said anything about it. Uh, there were some people that were let go in the challenge. And then that leader who I admired and was friends with uh, eventually retired because of that. And so it wasn't calling out his character directly, Steve, on that, but it was a recognition that something wasn't right and something had to change and you couldn't let that type of corruption go on and call me a whistleblower or whatever that happened maybe 12, 13 years ago. And I, I always worried about retribution uh, hmm. in, in the, um, the role I played in that. But there was a lack of integrity. There really was. That's the bottom line. And, um, and let me go down this rabbit trail for just a second, if you will. The Leadership Challenge is a, a book that a lot of people have read out there. Poser and Coons, I think, are the, the authors, if I say that correctly. And they've done a survey of all kinds of different different people over the, the past 20 years. And the number one, the number one characteristic that people look for in their leader, you know what it is? It is honesty, honesty and integrity. And if you don't have that bottom line, honesty and integrity, people can't trust you. And I think that's where people had gotten to in that cer certain circumstance, that story I just told you, uh, lack of execution and all kinds of challenges. So I don't know if that answered your question directly, but that's how I wanted to answer it back to you is that uh, the, the character trait of integrity is so important. Honesty with your people is the first trait they look for in a leader. And uh, I think it's important that we learn how to emulate that. Preston, do you think once trust is broken, that it can be rebuilt back to where it was before? I do. Uh, I think it depends on a lot of circumstances, but I think it takes time. That's the old uh, cliche, right? You can build, it takes time to build trust and only a moment to break it. I think trust can be re rebuilt. It's shown in marriages that uh, I've been on the brink of breaking. It's been on partnerships that have been on the brink of doing that. Um, and it, it really just takes a going back to the foundations, being vulnerable, uh, forgiving, forgiving, graceful uh, in those things. And I think uh, as you move forward in that, you can rebuild them. They won't be the same. I, I, at least from what I've seen uh, and what I've read and studied, there there may not be the same, but your trust can be rebuilt. Hmm. What do you think? Um, I'm ask the podcaster. What do you think, Steve? Yeah, I think it is almost completely dependent on the way repair is done. Yeah, uh, I, I think the challenge nowadays is so many people. I think we can fall short of our own values. 
but it's what we do when that's been exposed to us. And I think people who minimize or demonize or, or gaslight, I, I think that's it. They're done. But yeah, I, 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 think, tr- I think trust is extremely fragile. You, you get to this in the book as well. I think it's a fragile commodity. Um, and so to me, it has to be guarded and protected. And especially when there's hierarchical power involved, it feels like that adds an exponential factor to me. Uh, so the people under my leadership can break my trust. But if I break their trust, it's harder to repair, I think. That's true. Sure. Yeah. You, you actually wrote about... One of the things I appreciate about the story about the side hustle and the logo on the car, you, you very gently pointed out that this leader actually knew what was going on, but didn't really look into it until you pointed it out. Not in any way that you're the hero of the story. Just the simple idea that you're observing in the book that when we turn a blind eye to toxic behavior, that's on us. I do think there's a misunderstanding in Christianity still that being a Christian somehow equals being nice, which equals letting people get away with bad behavior or, or turning a blind eye. I'd love to hear more thoughts from you on how you do confront somebody when you catch them like that. Ah, oh, gosh. You know, in this circumstance, uh, I let things roll and play out because I knew they would. Um, I had to go to my manager and tell him what I had done. <laughs> Okay. Uh, and then it worked up the ranks. And so uh, higher level people knew that there was a potentially what we call a, a code of business conduct violation against that. The complicity that happened in that situation uh, really demanded that I, in a not a passive way, but I took the opportunity when I saw it. And I had an example and I didn't jump to conclusions early on with that. I didn't take hearsay. Uh, I had heard things. I had people come into my office. I had seen things. I'd seen the proof in the pudding, if you will, out in the marketplace from an execution. And in that moment, I just felt like it was in the parking lot, just very casual, wrapping up the end of the day conversation. I was asked a question. That was the time to uh, do that. So I go back to your question about a Christian being nice. Atheists are nice, too. Right. There's a lot of nice atheists out there. I think there's this desire for justice that you want to see the right things happen. I don't think God is nice. I think he's good. Hmm. And that kind of like, I think uh, C.S. Lewis says something like that in the uh, Chronicles of Narnia, right? Right. Aslan is not safe. He's good. He's good. Right. And so there's a, there's an element of danger there uh, around that. So I I prefer, and the interesting thing is, and I I talk more about this too in the book and I'm I'm living this out uh, now is engagement Uh, and the, the concept in the workplace about how do you set up an environment uh, where your employees are actually excited to be there. I, I don't know if your folk, your listeners know the exact definition of engagement, because I didn't know when I got involved in it about 11 or 12 years ago. But the uh, definition, working definition I've always used of engagement is this. It says that uh, it's the level of discretionary effort that someone is willing to put forth based on their relationship with their immediate manager and or their work environment. And so engagement ultimately comes down to, uh, Steve, if you're my boss, it comes down to mining your relationship. And do I feel like you care for me? Uh, do have you have you given me praise, encouragement, recognition over the last seven days? There's 12 different things that I, I can tick through and tell you about engagement. And the reason I take you around that engagement piece is this is because um, I had some interesting circumstances in our organization where uh, engagement scores came in very low for teams. And uh, what I was able to do, and this relates back to what I did with the uh, integrity story I just shared. Um, you rely on facts. 
is what we had to do. I had to, had to let facts play out. We had a survey done that showed that our engagement scores were very, very low. And I was put in charge uh, of an engagement team. And what the engagement team was to do is to go uncover what those challenges were, why people felt that way, and then how do we solve those problems? And I'll never forget, uh, you talk about confrontation, uh, being in a boardroom where I had a, a VP that was my uh, uh, supporter, if you will, uh, in this whole thing. And it charged me with doing all of it. And then sitting around a table of other VPs, and some of them were involved in the uh, previous and lack of engagement and the challenges we had in the organization creating all that. And having to sit and go through and talk about, hey, here are the scores, but we also talked to 50 associates and um, some confidential interviews, and here were the, the trends. And again, we talked about trust, but trust was one of those things that came up. And the associates basically said, we don't trust our leaders. Hmm. And so when you, when you have to sit there and share the facts back, instead of hearsay or accusations, I relied on facts and then the way to position it is very, very important. So that might've been a, a long way around to answer your question, but I, I wanted to share with the, the listeners that uh, in my circumstances, I had to rely on facts, evidence, concrete things before I then confronted somebody. Uh, and also understanding there's always two sides to every story. You mm -hmm. have to listen and people say three with the truth. And I hate when people <laughs> say that. Right. Sure. But <laughs> right. But that's true. Um, but you've got to look, look for the, the, the facts in that as you approach that. Yeah, it's fascinating to me, Preston. You know, you work for probably one of the most famous companies in the world, one of the most known companies, Coca-Cola. What would be the annual budget of Coca-Cola or the annual revenues? Do you, do you, I'm guessing you'd know off the top of your head. Uh, the billions and billions of dollars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. So, so here we have one of the most known brands in the world. I know in church planting circles, a lot of church planters talk about why is Coca-Cola more known than the church? But we actually use Coke as our standard because the marketing arm of Coke is phenomenal. Okay, multi-billion dollar annual company and it still fundamentally comes down to the health of the relationship between the manager and the employee. It does. It doesn't matter whether you're Coca-Cola in a Fortune 100 organization or in a small business or in a church or in a nonprofit. It all comes down to the relationship between the manager and that individual contributor. And the question then is the manager a leader or not, right? And I think there's a big difference between management and leadership. There really is. But I, regardless of what organization you're in, it really comes down to that relationship between those two. There's a lot in your book about prayer and Bible study that we haven't gotten to. Mm -hmm. This was what also struck me when I was listening to you speak at the uh, leadership conference we were at together is you actually got up on stage and taught us how to pray. Mm. Um, and it is fascinating to me how many people just need some help on how to pray. So I just wanted to open the floor for you to teach us a way of prayer that you have found helpful. Well, thank you. So let me let me back that up for a second, if you mm. will. Um, Barna, who is a, uh, and I love to share some statistics. I'm a, a business guy, so I, I always need some help in looking for market research to, to make a case. Um, but Steve, Barna did a study a while back, and uh, they found that 80% of Christians that had made a decision for Christ at some point in their life had not been discipled. That only means 20% have. So they've either not been discipled or not currently involved in some type of discipleship. So if you're sitting in a group of 100 people, 80 people haven't been discipled. Now, what do I mean by discipled? Well, if you look at groups like Navigators, they would say uh, something simple like this. They, they don't know how to read the Bible or study Scripture. They don't know how to pray. Uh, they don't understand the importance of being connected and involved in a local church. 
uh, a small group, et cetera, for that fellowship with other believers, how you grow. And lastly, uh, that I always talk about is how to share your faith, how to witness th- those four things. And uh, I've seen that play out in my life uh, where not only uh, for myself, and again, I had great discipleship growing up, so I knew how to do those things from an early on stage. But as I got involved and actually facilitated one of those Christian leadership concept groups, after I was a graduate, I went and facilitated one. It was amazing to have 12 other men around me uh, that, that did not know some of the basic concepts about how to pray, how to read the Bible, stuff like that. And what that really does is you have to know these these, uh, tenets, these principles, these uh, practices that have been handed down from generation to generation uh, to engage our Lord in in, in our belief and and have the Lord work in us and through us and develop us in that. So if you know those things, you know how to pray, uh, then you can learn what to pray about and do that. And so I lead people in, in the, it's the fifth chapter around talk. It's about talking to God, but also listening to God. And how do you do that? And uh, one of the ways I teach people is really basic. Uh, it's called ACTS, A-C-T-S. It's an acronym. And I just walk people through the simple fact that uh, first you start with adoration. And, and it's really just uh, praising God for who he is and what he's done. I always point people and say, okay, well, how do I do that? Well, I encourage people to go to like Psalms. If you'll read the book of Psalms and uh, uh, David, he did a wonderful job of just praising God and the words that he said and uh, on that. And so uh, that's an opportunity for you to uh, uh, really adore uh, the Lord. And then you move into C. And uh, we talk about this in great detail in the book, but confess. And that's where you would share and unpack uh, the sins that you have. And I I really encourage people, Steve, not to just uh, say, forgive me for uh, something. It's to unpack that, confess that where you were, what happened, uh, where you are in this and say, Lord, I really, I really uh, ask for your forgiveness and I repent from that. And the reason that's so important to do is to keep your account short with God. That's a long-term phrase, but if you'll do that through your confession and do that regularly, you'll, you'll, you'll have this connection to God because sin separates us from him. And when those sins are confessed and forgiven, we, we, we can draw closer. So that's uh, the A, the C. Let's move to T real quick. Thanksgiving, where we're thankful and we thank God uh, for everything that he's done in our life. And um, I always say that uh, uh, not necessarily, I think the phrase attitude of gratitude is great, but take that further and expression of gratitude is even better. And if you actually express that gratitude to God for everything he's given you in Thanksgiving, that's great. And then the last one is supplication. And supplication simply means the needs that you have and uh, bringing those to God. And I think that a lot of us, when we pray, we go right to supplication uh, on it. And so that's a model, the ACTS, the acts and how you can pray against that. And uh, I'd also do this and encourage the audience as you practice those things, you have to be deliberate over time and intentional to learn that. Um, But I find myself in praying, uh, praying without ceasing is what the Bible says. I will be in a car or I will be anywhere and I'll say a quick prayer. And I don't go through the ACTS. But I just have a, a quick shout out to God and say, hey, thank you for this. Or I'm about to go into or will you help me with um, or somebody struggling right now. And those are quick prayers. So uh, hopefully that answers your question. You've got a model there that you can follow, not a methodology, but a model that you can go after. And uh, understanding that uh, you can pray through that quickly or over, over uh, uh, a little bit of time.
Preston, uh, you have worked in a number of business environments. You know, you work for one of the most famous companies in the world. You've done a lot of work with John Maxwell. You're a certified coach uh, and trainer in, in Maxwell. And yet, you have never yet successfully faced the gauntlet of anxiety questions. So, oh, no. <laughs> a, le- a lesser man would be weeping right now. Um, t- tell us, let's just kick off by telling us about a leadership environment or a leadership situation that you know is going to make you anxious. What's going on in that situation? Oh, I, I hate when there's misalignment. Uh, what I mean by that is that in a, a corporate setting, if you go in and you have a project you're working on, uh, and you go in and there's a surprise or somebody springs out and is not aligned to the approach, it throws you off. That creates a lot of anxiety, uh, not knowing if a, a leader is going to approve or where their position is or how you can answer their objection. That's why I tell people all the time, the meeting before the meeting is the most important meeting. And what I mean that is there's lobbying that has to happen ahead of time uh, with the different key stakeholders in that meeting and to understand what their concerns, objections are, hopefully you can address them before they get in. And uh, a lot of times in big meetings, I always love to know what the decision is going to be before I go in there. Mm. Um, and if you don't, you're risking a lot to do it. I've been in, I've been in both circumstances. I've been in some circumstances where uh, we had a, a, um, somebody in our procurement group one time that was a, a uh, um, protagonist, if you will. Or I'm sorry, not a protagonist, an antagonist. Antagonist, yeah. Antagonist. So he was, a, he was very much against, but he would never say it until he was actually in the meeting. And uh, that just that, that creates all kinds of anxiety because then you got to go back and do rework and your self doubt and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, that's 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 what misalignment before a meeting in a business setting that that creates some anxiety for me. All right, so you have misalignment, and yeah. then uh, one of the ways you know in the science of systems theory, uh, a lot of chronic anxiety is generated by assumptions. Mm. So there's assumptions about ourselves, what we say about ourselves, and then there's assumptions about others. When you are seeing misalignment happen and your best efforts are not working, are you able to tell us what you are saying to yourself about yourself? Uh, I, I, where did you screw up? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> right? Why did that individual think that? How dare they? Why do they? Why did they not understand? And I kind of have to sit back and say, well, wait a second, maybe I didn't communicate something correctly, or we, what was the root cause of all that? What's my manager going to think? Right. It's not only the leader that's in the room. What's the feedback going to be? Uh, how's the hammer going to come down? All those things are racing through your mind. And if you have a great leader that you, you and somebody backing you, they will support you in meetings. Sometimes I've had leaders uh, that did not back me yes. and you're kind of left out there hanging. So that, that yes. creates the anxiety. And you usually know ahead of time who you're working for by then. Right. Like, oh, yeah. It, yeah. Is this I know, oh, man, this is someone who's going to hang me out to dry. Here we go. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, in some other meetings, I know that I call it the lion's den. Steve, where I would go in, I knew I was going to get beat up, but it was just the way it was. And I had to be ready to defend and, and uh, uh, do what I could. So yeah. uh, sometimes they come out of those meetings, though, the feedback's really good. It's just the approach is very different. I know a lot of organizations have that. It's just not my favorite to be in. Yes. Yeah. One of the things that is really helpful with family system theory in the workplace is the simple idea that we bring mom and dad to work, whether we want to or not or we bring our family of origin into the workplace, what would be one trait that you inherited from your family that's been a real asset as a leader? And what's one that's been a liability as a leader? You know, I I think um, one that I've really gotten from my parents was the ability to solve problems. Okay. They're really, really good at uh, 
personally, professionally, all the things they've been through. I've watched them solve a lot of problems and have come out typically okay. Um, one of the traits that I take, I think, from my parents uh, that I had to develop over time was um, extending trust to other people. Uh, you're without slow, them, you're slow right. to trust or quick to trust. Um, I'm very slow to trust. People. Slow to trust, yeah. yeah okay. Slow to trust, and so I, I both ahead, would be a liability, right? Like being quick to trust can also be a liability. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, I think if you go into uh, understanding, typically people have best intentions about what they're doing. And start from there versus the other side. Like, you've got to earn my trust. I'm going to put you through the gauntlet, if you will. Uh, to get there. Uh, yeah. I would. Uh, yeah, that's one of the things. But and that's OK. That's something I own that, though, Steve. And uh, uh, don't blame my parents for that at all. Uh, not, and I love my parents. Yep. That's just one thing I take uh, from that uh, and that I have slowly over time learned to try to extend that trust quicker than, than later. Oh, that's a great that's a great answer. Yeah. So then, then there are universal dynamics that are going to generate anxiety in the workplace. And, and I'm going to give you two, if you want to pick one of them, one is triangulation, which is anytime there's three people in a relationship that only should have two people in it. Hmm. So for example, gossip is always triangulation. Sure. Uh, if you watch any, the reason I can't stand reality TV shows is they intentionally triangulate people to generate drama. Yeah. You know, what did, what did you think about he did? So that would be one option you could play. The other one would be the phantom mob, which is when a group of people come to you and say, Hey, all these people have been talking, but I'm not going to tell you who's been talking. It's just a lot of people. And we all think this, give us an example of either of those that you've encountered in the workplace. Let's go to the, um, so I'll take triangulation for 500. Very good. Um, if you're okay with that. Uh, so I, I tell a story again uh, in, in Disciple Leader uh, about a leader, a manager that I had. I say that, a manager that I had, um, that she asked us with a, to do something by a deadline. And I had a team of 15 people. They were stressed to the gills, underwater, struggling, challenged. And uh, if I didn't speak up on my behalf and their behalf, they would uh, sink even further. And what this manager did in the meeting, I'm sitting in a staff meeting. She says that and I, I speak up. I say, OK, I have all this going in the back of my head if I say and thinking out implications, blah, blah, blah. But I say, yep, I'll go ahead and say it. And uh, she looks at me and she 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 has a look on her face and then she goes around and says, OK, I'm going to go to everybody else in the room and, and said, OK, Joe, do you have a problem meeting the deadline? No. Sarah, do you have a problem meeting the deadline? No. And it went around probably six or seven people in the room. No, Steve, even before they got in the meeting, this was the meeting before the meeting. Everybody told me that they were underwater too. Yes, but they couldn't stand up to her individually, right? It was quite That's a right. power move That's there, right. yeah. So I got thrown under the bus. Yeah. And uh, so that's an idea. That's triangulation where uh, that manager pitted the rest of the staff against me. And she yeah. looked at me and, and I was known for de helping develop people using a, a decision matrix and prioritization about urgent and important and all that kind of stuff. She looked at me flippantly and said, go use one of your priority matrices and figure it out. And uh, so I stepped back and I, I talked a little bit about the book, about how that kind of threw me off a little bit when that happened. But we overcame some things and uh, empowered the team and. Uh, we, we came out on the good side of that, but uh, where that started was not a good place. My goodness. And when she starts going around the room, just I can imagine how you're having to manage yourself to stay present to that. You, you can see where it's going after two or three people answer that. Yeah, right. Wow. 
You know, John famously says that um, perfect love casts out fear. And so I'm interested in knowing when in your life you feel most fully and completely loved. Um, you know what? I, the, the only example I could think of right off uh, the cuff here is uh, about my wife and her love and enduring partnership and support. I, I, my love language is uh, words of affirmation. And um, she's done so many things recognizing uh, that I need to be encouraged and built up. And she'll, she's also my biggest critic. So don't get that wrong. She will. She's very honest with me. Uh, and um, I get upset sometimes. That's OK. I'd rather have that that honesty in the relationship. But she also builds me up. And, you know, it's things like, uh, Steve, I remember for my, um, I think it was my 50th birthday, she went out to all of my, a lot of my key coworkers and friends, family members over the years. And I didn't know she was doing this, but, and I'm sure some of your listeners have had this happen, but she had a uh, book put together of all the different notes that people wrote, encouraging me, talking about my character, how I had helped them, the difference I'd made in their life. And she gave that to me. I remember we were in New York City. We were there for some kind of business meeting. And, and uh, she gave it to me. We were celebrating something. Uh, what was the birthday? And then I remember taking that book and going and sitting in a little cafe uh, outside the hotel, uh, some busy street there in Manhattan, and just crying. Hmm. And um, one, because my wife did that. But two, to uh, uh, just know that sometimes you don't know the difference you're making in people's life. But you actually are. And uh, that's when I felt loved. I was like, man, that's just so cool. And, and to say, and to get spiritual with you for a minute, it's like, Lord, you, you wonder if you are actually working in me and through me yeah. to accomplish your will. And you don't see it, but you do. And uh, that was very, very just touching to me. So that's one way that I felt loved. That's probably longer than you wanted on your gauntlet, but that's a story that I want to share with everybody. No, I'm so glad you did. That was a wonderful answer. And Preston Poor, thank you so much for coming on the show. We we don't have enough business leaders on here. And your book, The Discipled Leader, is a necessary book in the workplace. It's just a complete void of workplace discipleship. You know, so I think you're you're writing into a space we need to hear more from. And it was really a treat to connect with you in Pennsylvania and and great to just have you on here again. Thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. It's been an honor. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.